Thank you for listening to the Pentecostals of Bossier City Sermon Podcast. For more information, including our live webcast schedules, please visit www.pobc.cc. When you serve an extraordinary God, we don't have the luxury of pretending like any day is ordinary. Because every single moment can be an opportunity for our extraordinary God to work through his people who he is filled with his spirit. So God has something in store for everybody, not just here tonight, but tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, in your homes, in your workplaces, in your schools, wherever you are. Can we just wake up with a determination that today is going to be an extraordinary day? And if you believe that, would you say amen and clap your hands to God one more time? And give him a little bit of praise. Every night with my boys, I go upstairs and we have prayers that we go together. I've made mention of this before, so it's not something that's new. And I think I might have even mentioned it last Sunday. But one of the prayers that we pray, we pray about their next day. We pray about their development. We pray about our family. We pray about our house, and we pray a hedge of protection around them. Has anybody ever heard a prayer prayed over them where somebody prayed for a hedge of protection? Sometimes we name it something different, we call it something different, but I pray for God's protection over my sons, and I believe that God has done exactly that in our home, and I'm grateful for it every single day. There's this divine barrier of sorts around our home, and it makes more sense whenever you read the book of Job, whenever you read the first chapter and you read about the hedge of protection that was basically lifted off of Job because Satan saw him from afar and said, look at that man who's so holy, so righteous, so good. I bet if he didn't have God's blessings in his life, he would turn his back on God in an instant. He looked at him from afar and he said, I don't see him the way that everybody else sees him. If that protection was gone, Job would be just like everybody else. And being probably the most selfish creature that has ever existed, in my mind, Satan always has to take it back to him. He's always got to bring the story back to him. It's like, you know, sometimes you, you talk to people and every story somehow works back all the way around right back to me, right? Satan is the ultimate example of this. And I'm sure he looks at Job and he says, I know how I fell. I know what brought me down. I know the pride that I had in my heart. If God lifts his blessings from you for a moment, that's all the opportunity that I need. So the book of Job is a story of a suffering man, a godly man, a righteous man whose hedge of protection that he had was very much a real thing, but was lifted by God so that Satan could prove that his love and his dedication to God was conditional. There was a small element, a small element of the story where God responds back to Job in the midst of his sufferings and when his heart begins to just show the signs of turning, God speaks back to Job with this air of kind of, who do you think that you are? And God starts listing off his resume. Some of your resumes look very impressive for a very good reason. Others of us, maybe our resumes look very good because we're very good writers. Let's, let's say it that way. 
But when God starts listing off his resume and listing off his accomplishments and listing off what he's capable of, that has to be the most terrifying moment of your life because if you've irritated God just a little bit and he starts giving you his credentials, that story gets really intimidating very, very fast. In Job 41 verse 1, he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Everybody say Leviathan. Or press down his tongue with a cord. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? In verse 6 it picks up, Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So he says, you know the stories of Leviathan. You know the stories of the creature so fierce, the creature hidden in the depths of the seas. He says, you've heard this story. You know about his reputation. Do you have the courage to take him down? Do you think that you can actually go out onto the sea with your cute little boat and your cute little rod and reel and just toss it out there and hook Leviathan? Even if you have harpoons and put it in his head, like Ahab, if you just go out there and even if you do that, do you think for a moment that you have the courage to accomplish it? And Job knows that he doesn't because in this time period, as we'll discuss in a moment, the stories, the myths of the Leviathans and the other creatures in the sea, they were intimidating to the people of this time. They scared them. They terrified them. They lived in fear of them when they were out on the open water. According to several rabbis who have written about it over the centuries, not just the decades, the Leviathan was created on the fifth day of creation. Now this story, if if you read these rabbinical texts, I'm not saying that these are biblical in nature. These are not things that you can actually put into the codified word of God. But you can read these stories and you can get an idea of how they felt about these creatures that he's just casually mentioning when he's listing his credentials. It said, on the fifth day he created him and he immediately created a male and a female. But then he looked down at this creature and it was so fierce so terrifying, so powerful that he worried if they procreated that they would actually take over and destroy the entire earth. So these rabbis wrote that he looked down at the female and just... And then he saved that meat for the feast at the arrival of the Messiah. And so then you have this single creature, this creature that was so fierce in its reputation, so terrifying to anybody who ever heard his stories. He was alone. He was alone over the centuries. He was alone under the surface. And they said that at the bottom of the sea, he would blow hot air out of his mouth when he became hungry and fierce. And the, the, the air that he blew out of his mouth would begin to boil the water and the dead fish would rise up to the surface of the seas. This is the creature that he lists when he starts talking about himself to Job. And Job knows very well the nature of this story. This creature, this Leviathan, this mythical beast that everybody knew about it's it's the one that he said do you think that you have the courage to take it down I know that you don't it might be a purely we don't know for sure because God is himself is mentioning it but we don't know for sure it might have been a purely mythical creature it might be 
a storytelling device that God uses throughout the Bible, but I don't presume to know. I just read the Word of God and I let it impact me. But it represents our greatest fears. It represents perhaps the great fears, those things especially that we would call the unknown, the answers that we do not have, the things that keep us up at night, the worries that return over and over again, and we don't see a solution. It represents the greatest fear, and that is what makes all of us afraid. It's the unknown. Because if you know what the danger is, you know how to prepare. But if the danger is unknown and you don't see it coming, you have no way of readying yourself for the challenges ahead. So this is what the Leviathan represents. And God tells Job, the Leviathan is beyond your control. No one, not one, is fierce enough to battle with him. Knowing that, and knowing that I'm the creator of this creature, and I can just take out half of them in one moment. If that's my resume, who can stand before me? Who could dare look at me face to face, first of all, at all? But who could stare at me in the face and say, I've got a bone to pick with you. I don't quite like the way you're handling everything. I have some questions about your job. Because look, I know it's not my field of expertise. I'm a mortal. I'm a human. I'm a fallible man. I I get all of that. But I'm looking at you, God. And there are some things that I wish were a little different. So why don't you take this stuff under consideration and you get back to me. It's like we're leaving Google reviews for God and we're like, well, you know, the service is pretty good. However, it took a little longer than I anticipated. Everybody's flooding the internet with reviews over Popeye's right now. The chicken sandwich that, again, it might be a mythical sandwich because nobody's seen it in the wild, apparently. It's just something that they created, but they never actually have in stock, right? And so everybody's got the reviews. We're looking up at God and saying, you know, there's some things that I wish that you would do a little differently. But he looks down at Job and he says, what man could tell me what I owe him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, it belongs to me. And in Job 42 and 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. (laughs) I had a little trouble with that word. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. (laughs) He's stumbling. That, That sentence barely even makes sense. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes because Job had it made very clear to him. I'm sorry, but this job, all these decisions, all these opinions, it's a little above your pay grade. And so Job did what we would call backpedaling. Or since we're in Louisiana, he did a little crawfishing. The pincers go up, and he's just moving backwards. And he says, I repent in dust and in ashes. God used the example of the Leviathan because he knew how effective it would be. Because we are scared of that which we do not understand and cannot explain. For hundreds of years, many hundreds of years cartographers and people that it was their job to make these maps and to kind of give you a visual representation of the world for hundreds of years there were these places on these maps that no one had ever actually been because you had the coastline and then you had the ocean that was near it and then you had the deep ocean and everyone was too afraid to venture out past a certain point so they have these blank spots on these maps and they start trying to figure out 
what can we put there? Because it can't just be a blank page. What can we put there? And these maps were made for the wealthiest of people in society. So it had to look good and it had to catch the eye. And they said, I know what we're going to do. All of these creatures that we have heard about over the years that live in the sea that nobody seems to see or at least they don't see them and live afterwards. I'm going to draw those on these maps. I'm going to draw all these creatures, these leviathans, these deep, dark fears inside the heart of every man and woman. They said, we're going to put those on the map because, of course, if you're looking at a map, you might as well be terrified while you're at it. Like, it seems like a good combination. And so they start talking to these people. They talk to these sailors and to these fishermen, and they say, what have you seen out there in the depths? What have you come across that struck terror into your heart. And so the, the reason that they went to them, obviously, is because all fishermen throughout human history have been well known for their commitment to perfect accuracy when they retell stories. It's like universal quality. Nobody knows how to explain it. Their story's totally unembellished. But they, they imagine these creatures that people really believed existed. And on these maps, you can see a few pictures. Whales are drawn with huge spikes coming out of their forehead. Two water spouts that look like alien Teletubby antenna for some reason. I don't know what that's about. They got the fangs coming out from the bottom jaw. And they're attacking these ships because whales, they spend every single day attacking ships in the ocean. I didn't know if you were aware of this, but this is what they anticipated. And so there, there they, they drew these little creatures that everyone knew about and we're terrified about. Then there's a famous web-footed crocodile body tiger fang sea pig that for some inexplicable reason has three eyes that are barely discernible in the scales of its body. I don't know if they were functional or not. I'm not a historian. I'm just showing you the representation of this, this monster that clearly existed. A lot of these monsters that they drew, drew on these maps, they actually reappeared in the 1950s in Tokyo. And they, they waged war upon one another. But all these creatures on these maps, they terrified people. They actually believed that they existed. But the next image contains two memorable additions. And I'm going to have to zoom in on these so you can see. One of them was the random drowning donkey. We don't know why that was terrifying. Maybe somebody had one fall off the ship and he just commemorated his favorite donkey. But the next one, the next one, That's going to be in my dreams for the next 10 years. It's like an angry bird with a tadpole body. There are thousands upon thousands of these creatures that they imagine because everybody in that day and age, you don't understand, the water was not so much recreational in this time. The water was terrifying. We don't even know that much about the oceans. We, I've talked about that ad nauseum. We don't know that much about them. But back then, they knew nothing. And so they envisioned these dangers, these creatures, these threats, these obstacles, that when they were out on the sea, they were worried. They predicted the worst. They always predicted the worst of all of the places that they had not yet traveled. They always assumed the worst was coming up. They assumed that the unknown contained the greatest terrors instead of assuming that the unknown contained the greatest opportunities. They worried so much about the unknown fears that they ignored that there was another half of the planet that had people living in a prosperous land. 
A, plan that, a land that was ready for somebody to come and to inhabit and to, to, to have this society that we enjoy today. It was ready to be awakened, but there was a fear within the hearts of everyone of that age. They said, there's, there's leviathans there. They're sea creatures. They're well, there are killer whales, but not, not the kind that you see at SeaWorld. There are whales that will literally kill you with the forehead spikes and the antenna. This was where their fear took them because they did not see the opportunity in the unknown. If not for the sickness, there is no testimony of healing. If not for the loss, there is no story of comfort and resilience. If not for the uncertain future ahead, there is no story of doors being swung open wide by God. If not for the long-standing grudge, there is no opportunity to forgive 70 times 7. The unknown is not something that we should find daunting or find something to draw fear from. The unknown is the opportunity for God to sweep in an extraordinary God who can take a moment of fear and turn it into a moment of victory. Would somebody give God a little praise here tonight? But we fear the unknown. We fear the prayer that takes a little too long. We fear the questions that we don't know are going to be answered. We fear the circumstances that seem to be dragging on just a little while. But we give praise to the God who wrestles the darkness, the unknown, into submission. See, in the Gospels, you have a story that comes up three separate times. It's one of the most well-known stories from the Gospels at this point. It's even become something that people integrate into their language, even if they're not a religious individual. But the story of Jesus walking on the waves and the sea in the midst of a great storm is covered in Matthew 14, Mark 6, John 6. Only Luke, for some reason, who had to hear these stories secondhand, only Luke, for some reason, heard this story of Jesus walking on the water and was like, eh, that ain't nothing. It's not a big deal. The other ones very much thought it was a big deal, but Luke just looks at it and was like, oh, I'll leave that to them. But in these other stories, we hear something that happened, something that took place that people remembered from that time forward. People try to envision what it must have been like to see somebody walking on the waves of a storm in the midst of the sea as they had rowed for several miles and found themselves in a place that they could not contend with. They, they had the unknown all around them and importantly, beneath them. But in this story, there's something beautiful about it. I'm going to read it from Matthew 14 and verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. At this very moment, The boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, a question, by the way, he had just answered in the sentence before. If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and, water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. See, in this story, we often point to the wind. We point to the storm. We point to the waves. But we don't often point out what the disciples might have thought was underneath. Underneath the surface of these waves, there was a world that they didn't know much about. They knew that they caught fish from there, but they didn't know what all inhabited those waters. It was an era, remember, it was an era of fear and superstition. So much so that as soon as they saw a figure on the waves, what did they assume that it was? A ghost. This was where their hearts were. These were fearful men, and these superstitions led them to a place of absolute terror. This was a group that largely consisted of fishermen. They told some tales themselves, most likely, of what swam underneath these waters, swam in these deep seas, these seas that they didn't know a lot about. Because for as long as there's been fishermen, there are fishermen tales. And the other thing you have to know about the boat, this boat was not a large vessel. We have a picture of one that was actually dug up out of the Sea of Galilee in about 1986. They found this boat. This boat was only 27 feet or 23 feet uh, long and then seven and a half feet wide. This was not a big formidable ship. This wasn't something that would inspire a lot of confidence in a storm. It's not massive. In this study, they actually looked at this thing and they said, the, the bottom of this boat is so flat. Why is it so flat? And they determined that it had to be because it was a fishing boat and it allowed them to get closer to shore to fish in the shallow waters. It was not designed to withstand a storm. It was just a fisherman's device, this this vessel, this thing that was created for them to do a very particular job. And we think of Peter as being courageous for stepping out, and I'm not taking anything away from the apostle Peter. Don't get me wrong. But we think absolutely without any doubt at all that it was courage that brought him out of that boat. But could it be, could it be, just bear with me, that Peter didn't feel a lot safer in that boat than he would have been on the surface of those waves. Because as they rode across, for these miles they rode, as they rode, they had to be looking over the waves, and every time it dipped on their side, they had to look and see into the abyss. They had to see this wave, this water, that they couldn't see past just a few feet, and they had to wonder what is beneath here. And it rocked, and it, it, it was bent and shaped by these waves in such a way that it had to feel absolutely terrifying every moment of this ordeal. There was never a safe moment. There was never a moment of absolute pure hope. There was only desperation for survival. And then Peter sees this figure on the water, and they all together assume this is a ghost. And Jesus cries and says, no, it, it is I. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you... Yes, Peter, (laughs) we've established it. Let me come out on the water because this place where I am, I'm not meant to handle this. I don't know how to handle this. I feel unsteady and unstable, and there's so much doubt creeping into my mind. And he says, come on. And Peter hops out, and he stands on these waves. And you got to know, the first step was probably complete uncertainty, but that second step had to be amazing. He steps over those waves, and the feeling, at at this point, knowing the relationship of the disciples, 
and knowing how they kind of tried to outbid each other for Jesus' affection, you know that some element of him wanted to look over his shoulder at the other disciples and be like, Do a little river dance on there. But at some point, he looked out to side to side, and he saw the wind and the waves, and he starts. And at that point, he's not looking at the disciples. His eyes lock with his creator. He reaches out his hand, and he says, Jesus, save me, please. Because at that moment, it wasn't the wind that was his problem. It was the depths. It was the uncertainty. It was all below that he had no control or no knowledge of. And Jesus pulls him up. He chastises him just a little. Pulls him up. They walk into the boat. And then in an instant, the storm ceases. The wind just completely dies down. And the disciples look at him and they say, You are the Son of God. It's the same God that you read of in Genesis 1 and verse 2. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The creative force of God maintained his default position atop the waters of the seas, above every concern, above every fear, above every need that finds itself represented in this house tonight. The creative force of God has only one thing to do, and it's to speak peace, be still. And suddenly everything that is unknown under the surface comes into perfect clarity. It's just something else that belongs to God. What is your need? What is your fear? What is your doubt? What is your worry? What is your moment where you come and you say, God, I need something to fix this that I don't understand. We're afraid of the deep, afraid of the unknown, afraid of those answers. But we have a God. We have a Savior that walks upon the waves. A God who hovers over the face of the deep. And he looks down and he says, yeah, I can take care of that. I can take care of that. I can take care of that. All I need is someone who's willing to walk on the water. To reach out their hand when they feel unsteady. And when they say, save me, he's going to do just that. Don't you doubt your God. Don't you doubt your Savior on the waves. Somebody give God a hand clap. Love on Jesus for a moment. Build up a little faith in your spirit. God wants to move on his people. Somebody can do better than that. Clap your hands with some ferocity. There are people here represented who need a miracle in their life. But there are some you just have what you would just call a need. There are people that need healing in their body, people that need healing in their mind, people that need healing in their home, people that need healing in their, in their relationship, people that need something desperately from God. And you're representing yourself here tonight, and you don't know the answer. But God just sees it as one more thing that's under his control. 
You don't know what the next step is and you say, God, I feel your anointing and I feel your will just giving me a nudge, but I can't see far enough ahead. And he says, don't worry, it's just one more thing that I have under my control. You say, God, I don't know what the next step is. Doesn't matter. Just take one step at a time and look in the eyes of your Savior on the waves. Open your eyes and see the Savior on the waves. Everything that leaves us shaking hears his voice, and it has to obey. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. That is the reason why this church does not despair the way much of the world does. They say, what is the world coming to? I'll tell you what it's coming to. It's coming to a moment in the twinkling of an eye when your feet will lift off the ground and you'll say every bit of it was worth it because a Savior on the waves is a Savior that's calling my name who's about to open up this book, the Lamb's Book of Life, and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Somebody needs a let a little faith build up inside of your spirit. You've worried, you've doubted, you've feared, or you've just come in and it's the status quo, but God is calling you higher. God is calling you to more. God is calling you to walk over the surface, the face of the deep. Let's all stand together in this house tonight. I've told this story before, but for two reasons I left out a crucial detail. Number one, I, I, I don't like name droppers, right? Just don't like name droppers. People do it casually, and it's fine for them, but when I do it, it feels very forced. I better steer, steer away from all that. Second of all, well, you'll see. I've told this story in this place before, so you just got to bear with me as I repeat it. But when I, Before I learned to swim, I was terrified of the water. In a way where I would veer away from anything deeper than about two, three feet deep, it was terrifying. Bathtub, that was like the, that was the complete utter limits of the safety and solid. Like, I didn't, didn't want to go into deep waters. But my dad, who is very good at just kind of interacting with people casually, like he can have small talk with people at Starbucks, and now they all call him pastor, Right? Maybe that's just a thing with the frequency. I don't know. Who knows? But I'm a kid, and I don't know people at the thing that we're at. And he says, Ryan, you're about the same age as that pastor's son. Why don't y'all go hang out together? Their home is just down the road. And the boy says, we have a pool. And I thought, great. I don't, I don't swim. but I don't know what you want me to do with this. So I'm going to name drop here. The pastor, the pastor was, was Pastor Anthony Mangan from Alexandria. It's very well known, if you're not aware. This guy's, this guy's got a name because he's got an anointing that God has used, right? And so he has so many giftings from God, but one of his giftings, I would say, is a limited patience. In other words, there's a certain point where the patience no more. But, you know, it just has a way of nudging you, literally. And so I'm at their house terrified because I don't talk to the humans, right? Like I just sit in the corner and draw on a piece of paper all day. And so I'm, I'm at this house and we're swimming, not really swimming. I'm over on the steps and he walks by and he's like, hey, why are y'all not at the deep end? And I was like, I, uh, I, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't swim. And so he said, I'll tell you what, we're going to fix that right now. 
if anybody tells Pastor Mangan about this, just tell him that he better be glad that there's a statute of limitations. He takes his seven-year-old boy, he goes to the deep end, and he throws all like 37 pounds into the exact middle of the deep. And I literally thought in my head, this is how it happens. And I'm just... My head breaks the surface and you would think that's a perfect time to get some air, but all I could do was... And then finally I realized if I moved my arms a little bit, my head stays above the surface. And I'm not telling you that I became like Michael Phelps or something like that in an instant, but I kicked my little legs and I waved my little arms just enough to get to the edge and I was sputtering. I had water in my nose, down my throat. It just coughing and it was horrible, horrifying. And then he looked at, he just walked by me casually and he said, now you can't tell me that you don't swim. Attempted murderer, Pastor Anthony Mangan. But you know what's weird? The next time I jumped in a pool, there was a fraction of the fear that was remaining. Because when it's unknown, it's terrifying. But when you dip your toes into the water, you say, oh, God's looking down and he's just saying, you thought that I couldn't show up in an instant? You thought that I didn't call you to this? You thought that healing would not come from your voice as you looked at somebody not waiting for the pastor but said, cancer, in the name of Jesus Christ, dry up and be gone right now. Somebody needs to jump into the deep, unknown waters right now. If you want God to do something new, rush. Don't linger. Don't just pause for a moment. Rush to the front and get your hands up in the air and say, God, I'm surrendering every bit of myself. I'm not worried about the unknown. I'm not worried about the deep. I'm not worried about the questions that I still have remaining. All I want is for the fullness of your will to be done in my life. God, you see your people right now. You have given this church an anointing. You have blessed us, Father, for a purpose. Right now, you are filling us with a new anointing, a new passion, a new desire, a new calling to a different place. It might not always be comfortable, but God, there you are. There you are to hold our hand and to lift us back on top of the waters. Jesus, do something in us tonight. Somebody call out to God. Father, give me a new anointing. Father, give me a new faith. Give me something deep in my spirit that I can call upon. Somebody raise your voice with your hands right now and say, God, every bit of it. Give me all of it. Don't hold back right now, Father. I'm opening up my spirit. I'm opening up my spirit. Somebody start to just kind of linger off, just kind of just walk slowly into the waters right now and notice that it's not so bad after all. Let the faith of the Holy Ghost develop something new in you.
with whatever you feel comfortable, however you feel comfortable doing this, I want you, if you're comfortable, I want you to turn to somebody beside you and I want you to pray for them in a way that it, it might not feel like your initial reaction to this. But I want you to do something. I want you to lay your hands on their head. If you don't feel comfortable with that, would you at least grab the hand of the person that's beside you? And I want you to pray with some absolute boldness. See, if they're beside you, you probably know a little bit of this story. And if you don't, find out real quick because we're about to pray over the unknown and act like God already has it under control because he does. If you know they need healing, pray healing. If you know that they need encouragement, let God bring the joy of the Lord back into their lives. If you know that their anointing is knocking on the door of something new in the Holy Ghost, pray that the authority of God would open up something new in their spirit. Let's walk through that door together. Lift up your voice for your neighbor. Lift up your voice for your spouse, your friend. You might have just met them, but let the Holy Ghost flow right now. Jesus. believe they're able to be here tonight but here's what I'm talking about sister Wendy Hendricks has been going through a thing where her her blood pressure has skyrocketed and it's caused these complications and they've been worried about her heart and they've been worried about this stuff and I text brother Keith yesterday and he said thank y'all for the prayers he said I just can't imagine what I would do without her that question is the unknown but God can step in And in an instant, say, peace, be still, blood pressure, drop, go back down to normal. So we're going to pray it right now. We're going to launch into the unknown. Father, by the authority of the Holy Ghost, we pray that Sister Wendy's blood pressure would be perfect, perfectly regulated right now. In the name of Jesus, let healing flow through her body. Not temporary, God, right now, for now and forever. Let healing flow. We claim it in the name of Jesus. God, do it. Somebody worship God like it's happening right now. Somebody praise the King of Kings. Jesus, do it. (laughs) 